let me open up by praying if I should. Those are done, I pray that the one did this little discernment as to what I am saying and what I am trying to convey as I reflect on your word. If there is anything that I say is wrong or off, I pray that you would give them the discernment to ferret out what is right and what is needs to be rejected. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Um, first of all, if you're a visitor to this church, I know that I speak uh, a little bit oddly. Uh, can't help it, but there, there you are. So I'm just saying that if you're having a hard time understanding me, what can I do? Um, <laughs> secondly, I want to say that I've got good news for any visitor who is thinking about making this church his or her home church. And that is this. I am not the pastor of this church. The pastor of this church is a really nice guy. He's a wise man. His name is Ryan Spooner. He's compassionate. He's intelligent. He would never be so stupid to preach a sermon, the kind of sermon I'm about to preach. <laughs> but fools rush in where angels fear to tread, and so I will rush in, and I'm going to speak about one of the most controversial topics that is facing our country, in fact, the entire Western Hemisphere, once I come to think of it, and the search. And that's it, this I'm going to talk about immigration. Even as that word comes out of my mind, I'm thinking, I can't believe I'm about to do this. I'm going to talk about, at length about why this sermon is necessary. I'm going to talk about my interpretation of what the Bible says about this particular topic, and I'm going to be going through a whole slew of Bible verses. And I'm going to talk about potential objections to what I say, and then I'll briefly talk about how Christians can implement what the Bible says, and Sam will come up uh, at the close of the message and talk about some practical implementation ideas. I'll finish, we'll serve communion, and then I'll run away. Now, why am I preaching this fool's message? Because I think that immigration is a symptom of a larger illness. Anger is overtaking our country. And anger is overtaking grace among the followers of Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which 
It just seems to me that Bible-believing Christians are the most endless segment of our society, and that pains me. I find that so painful because it was the love of Jesus Christ and the Buddha people that brought me to Jesus Christ. We're presenting now the face of anger to the poor and to the helpless. Our anger is being diverted in the wrong direction. And I grow concerned as I watch this happen. We're stepping into an old darkness as we follow the path of anger and the path of rage. This darkness crept in during World War I after this nation declared war on Germany. German Americans, people who had been citizens of the United States for years and for generations, were suddenly persecuted. In some areas, the German language was banned. People were thrown into prisons. This darkness emerged again in the late 1930s and 1940s when State Department officials put a tramp on Jewish immigrants from Europe at the time that Nazi Germany was on the rise, and many people died in death camps who were trying to get out. There was a ship who tried to dot, which tried to dot in the United States, filled with Jewish refugees. It was not allowed to dot. It went back to Europe. Those, many of those people died in death camps. And it swept in again, and many of us have heard this story, during World War II when Japanese Americans, people who had been citizens for generations, were confined to internment camps. This is the darkness of nativism and nationalism, which says that my country and my people are intrinsically superior to other countries and other peoples. Nativism is not patriotism. Patriotism in its healthy form is the love of one's country and the love of uh, the service to one's country. I consider myself a patriot. But I do not resent, for example, a Canadian who is patriotic toward Canada or any other foreign country. Patriotism wants the best for one's country. Nativism and nationalism says that my country is superior. And my people, my, dare I say it, race, is superior to all others. And we're seeing this darkness today. I know that this is controversial to say, but we're seeing this darkness today emerge and creep in and it seeped in. We're seeing this darkness as Central Americans run away from totalitarian regimes that are far worse than the totalitarian regimes that my ancestors ran away from. 
There's a lot of stories of overcrowded prisons. There's heard stories about how at least five minors have died in prison while in federal custody. And of course, there's an incident in El Paso where a deranged person massacred people in the name of nationalism, what it amounts to. But you know, newcomers, people who are at the border, are not the only ones who are facing this dark anger. There's a story of Jose Sedoya Benitez. This was just one example. He moved to America at the age of three, along with his family from El Salvador. He became a leader, a leader resident of the United States. He joined the Marines at the age of 18, and he was wounded in Iraq from a brain injury. He was honorably discharged, but he did have PTSD. And he had temper flare-ups. And he was charged with felonies, including domestic abuse, uh, driving while drunk, etc. No doubt, he, he did some things wrong, standing from his PTSD. He did his time, and then in 2018, as he was leaving prison, several authorities arrested him and began deportation proceedings to deport him to El Salvador, a land that he left when he was three years old. A U.S. Marine who was wounded in one of our wars. I suggest as a scriptures offer an alternative to nativism. They don't tell us who to vote for, and I'm not doing that at all. Nor do they tell us to be politically liberal or politically conservative or even capitalist and social democrat. But they do give us a grounding for a theology of the common good. No, stay here. A theology of the common good wrestles with the Bible in what it says. And it gives us an overarching philosophy for its application in a secular society. We take biblical principles and we argue for them in today's society. We shine a light into the darkness. Now, I'm not talking about policy details. I'm talking about an overall philosophy. And we leave the details of decisions to elected officials. So, what does the Bible say about immigration and immigrants. What does it implicitly say? How does it guide us? Well, we begin with that Hebrew word that you see up on the screen. It's there, uh, there, G-A-R-E. 
it occurs 92 times in the Old Testament, in one form or another. It's often translated as foreigner or sojourner or alien. Tim Teller gives a very compelling argument that it should be translated as immigrant. And I read that and then I saw how the word is used and I thought, I'm sold. He's right. Uh, you know, and I, I, I realized that I, I was coming at this perhaps with an agenda because, wow, that plays nicely into my thing. It is right. We'll see why. And we'll see that God told the ancient Israelites to grant the immigrant equal treatment and special care. Why? Because immigrant, immigrant tied in with the very core of Israel's identity and it ties in with the core of our identity as well. I see that in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 to 34, it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. I see it in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 14. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of their towns. I see that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, the same law applies to both the native-born and the foreigner residing among them. Notice that phrase, the foreigner residing among them. These foreigners were not visitors or tourists on a bus. They were not snapping selfies of themselves near the Dead Sea and then going on to tour the souvenir shops in Jerusalem before they went back home. They were immigrants. They were foreigners residing among them. And the Israelites were to regard them as native-born. They were to be given equal treatment. But not only were they to be given equal treatment, they were to be given special care. <coughs> okay. The Bible often couples immigrants with widows and orphans, and widows and orphans were to be given special care. This is Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 21 to 22, where God tells the Israelites to be bad farmers. 
on behalf of the vineyard. When you harvest the grapes in the vineyard, do not go over your vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I commanded to do this. This is the same thing in other passages. Um, for the sake of anyone taking notes or listening to this on the podcast, I'll go through the verses. This is the same thing in Psalm 146, verse 9. This is the same thing in Zechariah, chapter 7, verses 8 to 10. This is the same thing in Ezekiel, chapter 22, verses 6 to 7. And Malachi, chapter 3, verse 5. And Jeremiah, chapter 7, verses 5 to 8. And Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 18 to 19. There's a lot of verses. The immigrant was to be granted special care. Now, why do we see this command as far as equal treatment and special care? This is the reason for it in some of the verses that I mentioned. I'll mention once more, one more. Exodus chapter 23, verse 9. Do not oppress the foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners. Because you were foreigners in Egypt. The very identity of Israel hinges on those words. Foreigners, aliens, strangers. And that identity not only went back to Moses, it went all the way back to Abraham and Sarah who were born in what is now Iraq and they emigrated to what is now Israel and they lived there. We, the followers of Jesus Christ, are foreigners and aliens. We are immigrants. Most of us are not Jewish in our heritage. Anybody uh, have Jewish heritage here? Uh, don't be afraid to raise your hand, but it's okay. None of us. That means that all of us are engrafted branches. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. The great dividing wall in the New Testament was the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile. That wall has been obliterated. It says so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither said nor free, nor is a male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Understand this. In the eyes of God, that no one is garbage. 
thrown in the middle of things and zapping these in the middle of things will not garbage. Africans from Ghana and Middle Easterners from Yemen and refugees from Honduras are not garbage. They are just as precious as blonde Europeans from Norway. And I've been waiting so long to be able to say that. My aunt, some of my ancestors come from Norway. Thank God that they are intruded among the precious ones. But they're not alone. That's the mentality that we bring in. The overarching arching outlook that we bring in. But I hear objections. Let me see if I'm that place. <laughs> okay. Close your eyes to that. I'll come to it. But look at me not at the screen, please. <laughs> no, I'm too far ahead on the screen. There are objections to what I'm saying involving interpretation and application. Many of the passages that I have cited are from the Old Testament. And some people maintain that the Old Testament is no longer applicable. Well, it's true that some sections of the Old Testament are no, no longer applicable, at least in terms of literal application today. Circumcision no longer applies. The laws of the temple ritual no longer apply. There's no temple. Well, where is the temple? The temple has been transplanted. The dietary laws no longer apply. But notice something. There's a common theme among those laws. They erected a barrier between the Israelite and the Gentile. They made the Israelites distinct, and that was necessary at that time. Israel was the one valid theocracy of that era. It is the one nation that was a chosen nation. That barrier has fallen. Gentiles are engrafted branches. But the mindset behind the laws of justice do survive. Remember Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. So I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. That's the overall motif that we bring in for those of us who would desire a theology for the time and do it. The face of grace replaces the face of anger. And what's more, there's this. 
in the Book of Romans and in other places, we find that the Church of Jesus Christ, the people in the Church of Jesus Christ, had taken on the mantle of the old Israel. In a sense, we're the new Israel. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It was one of my favorite verses, still is, probably more so, uh, but I did not appreciate the depth of this verse. It says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the places of him who called you out of darkness for his, into his wonderful light. For a long time, I merely looked at that verse devotionally, and I said, wow, I am God's special possession, and that's true, and I was good, and I needed to know that. But there's something more to this verse, that language that Peter is applying to modern-day believers is straight out of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, I believe. And that's describing Israel. We are the new Israel. We befriend the foreigner just like the people of the old Israel befriended the foreigner. There's another more subtle objection. It's not so much of an objection but I would even describe it as insidious. And it's an objection that many of us, including myself, have bought into in the past. And that's the objection that comes from the supposed moderates. It's the objection from some of those who think of themselves as peacemakers. It doesn't say they're wrong, but we're forever being hushed up. When the loud voices of anger come forth, we want to respond, but there are people out there and voices in our head that say, no, don't say anything. You don't want to be divisive. You don't want to cause disunity. We agree with what you say, we just don't agree with the way you say it. And by the way, you didn't pray enough beforehand, before you said that. Yeah, we should pray, but the, the thing is that, that how much prayer is enough? No, it's never said. That is not Peacemaking, that is peace-fencing. That is conflict avoidance in the guise of conflict resolution. That's why I put up that quote from Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King got exacerbated, not right word, um, frustrated, with the white moderate, and he said this in his famous letter to the, uh, from Birmingham Prison, he said this, 
I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the slide toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the two plus channel, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with the goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with the methods of direct action. In order to be peacemakers, we've got to engage in conflict in a peaceful fashion. Let me say that more accurately in a shalom fashion, which, uh, fashion which brings about well-being. Another objection comes in this form. The Bible is only discussing little immigrants. It's not talking about illegal immigrants. And my answer to that is, well, whatever. I mean, as far as I can tell, there were no illegal immigrants in Israel. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that should be the case now. Um, but we do have to ask, are our laws just or are they arbitrary? I mean, the recent wave of laws against immigrants has erected so many barriers that it's very difficult to determine legal immigrant. Now, that's my opinion. I'm venturing a little bit into policy, and I want to immediately retreat from that. Except to say this, remember this, much of the injustice in society has been perfectly legal. The Jim Crow laws were legal. Slavery was legal. Preventing women from owning property and, uh, and the right to vote was perfectly legal. And Christians have a heritage of protesting on just laws. And then there's another question. Are not governments obligated to protect their citizens from wounded terrorists and others who would do them harm? And my answer to that question is yes. They are. That's a valid concern. We saw it in 9-11. And the FBI since then has done a very good job of finding the would-be terrorists and preventing them from death in here beforehand. Um, there have been several plots. And we got lucky one time when a shoe bomber, the passengers of the airline, stopped him. 
a theologist or the Samadur would understand the needs for a government to protect its citizens, but it would also understand that the vast majority of would-be immigrants are running away from terrorists, and they're running away from tyrants. I'm not going to get into the details of what should be done and what should not be done. Again, that's for the elected officials. I am arguing for an overall theology for the common good. And I think that the overall philosophy of the common good, or theology of the common good, is found is that uh, can be summed up whether by accident or on purpose on the path of the Statue of Liberty. They grasp the heart of God. I don't know if that was the intention of the author, but listen to it. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses learning to breathe free, the wretched blessings of the sin and sword. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The United States, in its best, has done that. Some of us are old enough to remember the boat people from Vietnam. What did the United States substantially say? Come on in. And the church led the way with this other refugees. Oh, man, it was beautiful. It wasn't beautiful for what was happening in Vietnam, but our response, by and large, was great. What have we said to refugees from Cuba? And to others? And that statement on the Statue of Liberty, I suggest, sums up how we should think about this issue. What should our disposition be? Especially as Bible-believing Christians, those people looking at us, they know what the Bible says, or they might not have read it, but they know the overall disposition. And they're looking and wondering if we're modeling Jesus Christ. Okay, so what am I to do in the face of all that, aside from feeling just bowled over? I mean, I haven't exactly talked about, I haven't exactly given tips for how to raise your children. I mean, so far we're way up there. How can I bring it down to the earth? Sam's going to speak to that. I have a couple of thoughts. First of all, pray. Now, when we say prayer, someone, some people say that prayer, my thoughts and prayers are with you. They put it on Twitter and that's it. That's not the time of prayer I'm calling us to. I'm talking about real prayer. I'm talking about hitching up to God, finding out His will, 
and bringing his kingdom ways and his kingdom power to the earth. I'm talking about your kingdom come, O Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's ultimately what we're praying for. We are, we're risen up in the heaven. We're grabbing the things of heaven. We're pulling them onto the earth. We're being a kingdom people. We're being tokens of the future of Christ's second coming in the present. We're meant to be a people of the future, living now. And that's a whole realm of biblical thought that I'd love to plunge into, but not now. Real prayer empowers us and makes us conduits of God's love and it gives us the face of grace. We then become God's active agents and bring in heaven's ways onto the earth in a variety of ways. Within the 10 valleys, there was one held in Willamantis recently that I missed against white supremacy. Within a 10 relevant town meetings and legislative meetings, within white letters to the editor, and those letters to the editor begins as a follower of Jesus Christ, dot, dot, dot. All sorts of ways. We don't do this with snort. We don't do this with vilification, but with the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. And, and meanwhile, we can praise God that he has brought the dividing wall, the one between Jew and Gentile. I and mean, isn't that good? So I'm going to ask that one of them, because we're all dissected. Isn't it great that God has dropped the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? Thank you very much. Next time we'll rip war and go for it. But that was good. I was going to invite the worshiping up, but as I understand it, the worshiping was not meant to come up to today. So I will invite Zan up, and Zan will talk about some other practical tips that we can do, and then I will close with a few thoughts, and then we'll go from there. Thank you, Chuck. So I did get permission from Keith to do this. <laughs> um, when I found out what Chuck was going to be preaching on, I thought, um, I've been thinking a lot about what practical applications are out there. And so um, I emailed Keith this week with an idea, and he said, it sounds like a good one. Let's, let's roll with it. Um, so I'm often asking, what do we do? Um, I have a family member, not in my immediate family, who likes to tell me that I can't save the world. And sometimes, you know, that's meant, that's meant to shut me down probably, but I often come back with, but you can change the world for one person. There's always something we can do. We can't do everything, but we can do something. Um, so last week, uh, the outreach team met 
and I won't speak for all of them, there was actually only a few of us there because summer is busy, but I will speak for myself. Um, we were sort of lamenting the crisis at the border. And though we recognize that immigration is a complex issue, we, we sort of agreed that the current situation is egregious. Um, being this far away from the border, we didn't know what we could do to help. But in my research, I found out that there are actually ICE detention centers not too far from here in New York and in New Jersey. So I contacted a group called First Friends. First Friends of New York and New Jersey upholds the inherent dignity and humanity of detained immigrants and asylum seekers. They promote compassion and hope through volunteer visitation, resettlement assistance, and advocacy. Though we may be a bit far to provide regular visitations to asylum seekers, there are a few things we can do. Um, first, you can sign up for their pen pal program, and that's just something we can do as individuals, something I learned about. Um, first Friends says that living inside an immigration detention center can feel lonely, confusing, and scary. Being separated from family, friends, and all that is familiar is stressful. Being treated like a prisoner while awaiting an unknown outcome can take a tremendous psychological toll. So when you're assigned to a detainee um, and you write to them as a friend, you are making a human connection and honoring the dignity of every human being. So um, I personally have just started that process. Um, if you'd like to talk to me about that after church, I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it yet because I'm just getting started, but I'd be happy to share what I know. Secondly, First Friends also has a program called Stamp Out Despair. It's a semi-annual drive where writing materials are collected and assembled into packages for detainees. Phone calls can cost several, minute, uh, several dollars a minute and therefore are out of reach financially for many. These kits allow detainees to communicate with family and friends and it offers encouragement and hope in the midst of a difficult time in someone's life. For the next month, we will be collecting letter writing materials such as paper, greeting cards, envelopes, and stamps, and we hope to assemble 100 kits for First Friends Stamp Out Despair campaign. This is where I'm going to show my dependence on Keith, and I know we probably all will agree on that. He does a lot around here. Um, I, I created a sign-up genius, but he's the only one that knows how to do a big uh, email blast. So I haven't been able to forward that on to everybody at the church. But I do have a sign-up sheet in the back. You're welcome to kind of sign up for something to bring. Um, we'll be collecting those through, I think, September 15th, so about a month. Um, and that would be really, really helpful. There's also a green slip back there that looks like this. It has the URL for the sign-up genius, so you can go to it yourself. Or you can always email me. It's Jana at EarlMcDonald.com. My name's also on here. Um, and I can get you hooked up to that sign-up genius. Um, what else do I want to say? Uh, I guess I just wanted to close with, I was reading a little bit um, in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus reads Isaiah's words, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Um, then he goes on to say, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, we know that Jesus shines light into dark places. Um, and as followers of Christ, we get to do the same. Um, this is one way we can do it. 
this is how we bring, as Chuck said, God's kingdom power on earth, right? We're his hands and his feet. So um, it's, a, it's a small thing that we can do sometimes when we don't know what to do. Um, so we hope you'll join us in partnering with First Friends. Thank you. Um, I, I would like to sew this up by saying, number one, I understand that uh, not, I wouldn't be surprised if there are several of you who do not agree with about his post, or, or some of what I said, and that you have a different interpretation, um, and I honor that. I look out among you, I know most of you, all of, um, I know almost all of you to a certain degree, and I know there should be compassionate people. I would say this, that there are some uh, people who say that this is a biblical, should I say that? Okay, they're saying that this is the evangelical position on this issue and other issues. I've been, well, what has been called an evangelical Christian ever since the early 1970s. I, I'm not using that term to describe myself for reasons which are probably true, but I'm an old evangelical. I don't recognize what is being said. Those are discernment, isn't it? Especially when you might be listening to a sermon on the radio. Sorry to say that, but so. But more important is this. You might disagree with some of what I said, but here's what I'd like to give you as a take home. And I think that everybody can accept this. Ask yourself a question. Which face am I presenting to the world now? Am I presenting the face of anger and rage? Or am I presenting the face of grace? I submit that anger and rage have seeped into God's church. Has it seeped into me? And I taken and my taking positions entered in ways or entered in God's grace. And this soul we can play. God dissolve my anger so that I can wear your face and present it to society. May God, may I wear the face of grace. And if you're doing that, I will have succeeded in this message. Thank you.